Welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast. And this is episode number 94 from the Zone Radio Studios here in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball, along with Carrie Haskell. It is here in this very room that our daily program, Downtown, originates Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the stations, the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you every week on the podcast by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. This time around, two very talented artists will visit with us. Uh, one, a Grammy Award winner as uh, an artist who has uh, done it all in his career, a singer, songwriter, producer, arranger, author, music historian, actor, voiceover artist, Billy Vera, best known for his late 1980s number one smash hit at this moment, but he has done so much more than that in his career and worked with seemingly everybody in the business. We'll hear more about that in part two of the podcast this week, but in part one, a guy that we were are so thrilled to have on when he was on the show and here on the podcast because he's been making us laugh and much of the rest of the world for I guess, nearly three decades now as one of the founding members of the Kids in the Hall, one of the stars of the great series News Radio and appearances in countless films and television shows. Dave Foley, just one of the funniest people in the business. Yeah, he really is. And it, it, for me especially... Because I had grown up through my teens just devouring Monty Python, which was started before I was born, and SNL, which started when I was like seven years old, devouring that old stuff. So when Kids in the Hall started being broadcast in 89 when I was in my 20s, it was like, okay, this is the comedy of my generation. This is this is for me. And, man, it was, uh, it was just eye-opening in so many ways and, a wonderful uh, com- comedy. And then, of course, news radio. Being in radio, <laughs> yeah, that show hit it on so many levels. And just such a brilliant ensemble as well. We, we talked about that. We talked about a lot of things. Covered a lot of ground in our conversation with actor and comedian Dave Foley. Hi, how are you doing? I have to get to the important question first, Dave. Um, because my last name is Kimball, I may be biased, but was Hank Kimball, the county extension agent, the best character on Green Acres? He was one of, well, he, I don't know if he's the best character on Green Acres, but I'll say this. He's one of the greatest comic characters of all time. A better a than Sam Drucker, a certainly. Original, a completely original character. <laughs> no question about it. So your love of Green Acres, uh, your character's love of Green Acres on news radio, that was, uh, that was from your real life. It it was it was it was uh, yeah that uh, I yeah I, I absolutely I've, I've been a huge booster for people trying to get people to watch that show again as adults now uh, so I know I watched it as a kid and to realize just what a masterfully written show it was and how beautifully subtle all the acting is on that show except for Eddie Albert the straight man yeah and one of the great Eddie theme Albert. songs too oh it's oh it's, my God it's genius. You get everything you need to know for every episode in that, you know. Uh, like, yeah, we don't. I mean, we don't even have, people these kids these days. They don't even know what a credit sequence is. <laughs> <laughs> I I had grown up watching that in reruns and stuff, and then uh, in my mid to late twenties, I, I can't remember what cable network it was. I'm, Nick at Night or something was running it, and yeah, it it takes on a whole new meaning as an adult. And the, the comedy oh, of it is yeah. so, so great. 
the structure and, and, you know, everyone loves things that are meta now and Green Acres almost invented it. <laughs> you know, I mean, where you'd have uh, Lisa Douglas commenting on the opening credits while lying in bed in the morning <laughs> as they were appearing on the screen in front of her, you know, you know, and uh, I mean, that was like just, you know, just incredible absurdist genius. And, you know, and they're running gags. For me, it was like, it was like, uh, like you had a, a half hour of uh, E and Esco every week, you know. <laughs> it was like this amazing absurdist theater every week. Well, let's go back to to your roots in the beginning of the Kids in the Hall, which uh, has inspired so many people through the years. Uh, such a landmark group. What were the inspirations for you guys as young performers? Uh, well, well, obviously, well, one of them, was, I guess, for me, would have been Greenacres. <laughs> uh, but as a as a group. Uh, I see. We were we were very inspired by um, SDTV yeah. out of Canada, especially uh, the TV show, uh, and, and of course, and by Monty Python. Uh, but in in a way uh, that's contrary to what I think most people would think, like we were inspired like we were inspired by Monty Python to be as little like Monty Python as we could be because we loved it. Sure, and same thing. Same thing with SCTV. Because we loved SCTV, we didn't want to tread on the ground they had walked on. One thing that I do see that you guys did a great job of keeping similar to Monty Python is sort of the timelessness of a lot of the stuff on that show. It, it, because I, I went back and watched some episodes of it in the last few days, knowing you were coming on. The comedy isn't time specific. It, it's funny regardless. Mm -hmm. Well, that was, yeah, because consciously, as I said, when we started out, we said we're not going to do any parody of anything because SCTV, we all loved SCTV and they did the best parody ever, you know, but now you watch SCTV and you have to have watched, you know, uh, Fantasy Island to know what they're talking about. So yeah, so it gets, it gets trapped in its own time frame. And uh, really, as I recently heard uh, uh, Eric Idle and, and John Cleese being interviewed. And they talked about how when they were starting out, one of the things they deliberately decided was they were not going to do any satire. Um, because they said everyone was doing satire in England at that time. They said people had had like four or five years of nothing but satire. And so they said, we're not going to do any satire. And as a result, their show is timeless. So it was, uh, it was you know, it's, I think both of us, it was a reaction to the predominant comedy of our time. We're talking with Dave Foley here on Downtown. It's hard for me to believe that and news I'm being radio. Boring. I'm being boring. No, hey, everybody, listen up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being I'm being very academic about comedy. Well, we like that. I can't believe news radio debuted 25 years ago. It is and remains to me one of the best comedies I think in the history of television, with just an absolutely amazing ensemble. What was it like to to be in the room working and being one of those many talented people? Oh, it was uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I mean, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it made it hard to get things done because you're in a room with so many people being that funny and that that fun to be with. That uh, sometimes it took you know it took our director Tom Strone as having to yell a few times to get us focused to do anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, luckily luckily we had a great director that we loved. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean that was one of the most amazing tasks ever put together. I mean, Paul Tim just did a brilliant job putting the people together. And then he, and then on top of that, he put together one of the best, 
writing staff, I think, ever on a television show. Uh, he just found, and he did all, he just kept finding people that were of a like mind with himself that he, that he thought were funny. And, and, uh, and he made choice, good choices. So that when we all got together, we all immediately, uh, liked each other and fit in together. Like he, he did a brilliant job of putting that, that whole group of people together. That transition from sketch comedy to, to sitcoms is one that has made some performers stumble, but you seem to make the transition, made it seem very easy. Were there similarities in the productions of those two shows that made it easier to make that transition? Um, yeah, well, in that Kids in the Hall, we did uh, about half the show was done with a multi-camera setup. Uh, so that was similar. So I was used to that format. I was used to playing, you know, to multiple cameras and and knowing my cues and knowing my my blocking and all that sort of thing that you need to do to make uh, multi cam work. So that that definitely was um, made it easier. Um, and uh, you know, for me, the biggest uh, the biggest transition was getting used to not working this hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know. Yeah, just having to play one character and, and not have to uh, not have to uh, put on my fake tits in the morning <laughs> and, and and wander about in high heels all day. It was a relief uh, for me when I could stop doing that too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, you know. Uh, getting getting pretty is really hard work, um, so it was, it was a great relief to not have to do that anymore. You know, you know. So uh, so I, yeah, that was amazing. I, you know. For me, like just acting felt like being in semi-retirement. I have to ask you about what is one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I think it, it's a comedy classic. I loved your work as Bob Haldeman in Dick. Oh, oh, I, oh, good. I wasn't sure where you were going to go because I've been in so many bad movies. Uh, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that movie. But I, I mean, I grew up as a, I grew up during the, uh, the the Watergate era, you know, and I was a precocious kid who would go home and watch the hearings on TV. So for me, it was really fun to get to play, uh, you know, one of my, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the men I grew up hating. You know? <laughs> Is there anybody in this current uh, administration, I'll put that in quotation marks, is there anybody you could see yourself playing when they finally make the movie of what we're watching now in real time? Oh, my God. Uh, well, I've been told many, many times uh, to my to my deep deep despair that I could play Lindsey Graham, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much. I'm not sure if my skin wouldn't crawl off my bones yeah, if I tried to inhabit his persona at this point. Hard to summon that righteous anger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To summon it and and keep that undertone of absolute insincerity yes yes but, but enough that people can see it hey you've done uh, dave so much voice over work through the years uh, is that is that enjoyable i think people say well that that's got to be easy work and yet you don't have any other actors for somebody who's worked in in close ensembles you're working by yourself most of that time yeah it's surprisingly hard work uh especially if you're doing like a large like doing something like a bug's life was uh, really was surprisingly exhausting. I didn't anticipate it being so hard. Like at the end of a, a, of a recording session for Bug Life, I would be physically exhausted and, and mentally exhausted because 
you have to create it all in your head while you're doing it. And you've got to keep this high level of energy up with nobody to play off of because you're usually alone in the studio. I mean, I was very lucky. I had John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton in the studio directing me and, and they were great at, 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 uh, you know, conjuring up the, you know, the visuals for me and, and, and inhabit, inhabiting the other characters, you know, and pushing, you know, and pushing me to, to do, to, to have the right level of energy. Uh, but man, at the end of the day, I would usually, my voice would be shot and my, my head would just be mush from, from trying to, from imagining all day. You got to stay in a room. You have to, uh, to do it well. You've really got to believe that you're in those scenes while you're, while you're recording those lines. And that takes a lot of work. So we've been laughing for a couple of days here in the studio uh, at, at watching you read the letters of James Joyce, who turns out oh was a God. very naughty man. Yeah, I've got a pretty, I've got a pretty rock solid stomach for that kind of stuff generally. <laughs> but I was, I was stunned by that. Uh, you know, especially uh, uh, stunned by the, the the degree to which uh, his. I'll say his predilections ran to the fecal. <laughs> yes, you know? yes. Let's. Uh, we, we've got a little clip that we believe is suitable oh, you for. You can't run that on the air, can you? Just a tiny bit. I think this is okay. But if it's not, uh, have the FCC call yeah. us. Here we go. Yeah. Tell me the yeah. smallest things about yourself, so long as they are obscene and secret and filthy. Write nothing else. Let every sentence be full of dirty, immodest words and sounds. They are all lovely to hear and to see on paper even, but the dirtiest are the most beautiful. <laughs> that was brilliant. That was about the only part you took away. Yeah, that was it. Uh, I was going to say, you should have... This should be a warning thing to parents, if there are children in the room, that you should probably abandon them with wolves rather than let them do this. <laughs> I uh, I had a lot of fun taking it around the uh, around the station and sharing that with everybody. Uh, I started starting with the HR person in the office. Yeah, uh, she found it very funny, so I was safe at that yeah. point. So she she allowed you to let other people hear it. It's just yes. uh, right. It's yeah, only a just a, a notation in his personnel file. Nothing serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Natalie Morales, uh, genius to do that. Uh, she found those letters. And uh, you know, gathered a whole bunch of her friends to come in and, and uh, try to read them in as austere a way as possible. <laughs> you know, uh, to, try and, to try and PBS them to death. Oh you know? yes, yeah, very much so. And the ending—I don't want to give it away, but the ending is perfect. You can check it out on Funny or Die. I think the first guest we had who told us about uh, th this was our friend Gilbert Gottfried. But you're out there uh, doing things on Cameo as well. Uh, what kind of bizarre requests do you get from people on Cameo? Um, well, mostly it's mostly it's really nice stuff. It's mostly people wanting you know to have birthday messages. Occasionally, people will uh, will write scripts, kind of for you to do, <laughs> and they, and some of them don't necessarily make any sense uh, <laughs> if you don't know what who, the people that are involved. Uh, and some people some people actually try to, try to use Cameo. Uh, to get you to appear in their movies through cameo, <laughs> like they try and write dialogue for you to do. And say, so I'm doing this movie, and I'd love to keep it, uh, you know, to read this dialogue, and we'll edit it into the movie I'm doing. And, and so we have to sort of go, hey, uh, 
you can't I you can't get me to do that for this much money. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. <laughs> I, I noticed uh, you've uh, had some comments on uh, social media about uh, UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the yeah the socially acceptable term for UFOs now. And, uh, well, it's something I'm really interested in, and uh, and a part I'm really interested in the fact that more people aren't interested in it, uh, considering the fact that the Pentagon has come out, the Pentagon and uh, the Department of Naval Intelligence have both come out and on the record said UFOs are real. They're invading our airspace, uh, restricted airspace. At alarming rates, uh, they do things that defy the laws of physics, and we have no idea uh, where they are coming from, and we have absolutely no way to stop them. So this is something that the Pentagon and the Department of Naval Intelligence have come out and said, and it's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, uh, and still nobody cares. It's fascinating yeah. to me, and we've had, uh, I don't know if you've read any of Annie Jacobson's work, uh, but we've had her on. I, I have. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I kind of feel like uh, Annie, uh, from what I can gather about her, her latest book about Area 51, is that she's just become a, a disinformation agent, really. Well, some of what she's written about, I find fascinating uh, in Area 51, but also she wrote uh, a book, Phenomena, uh, that, that is about uh, the, how the CIA has used people who can do remote viewing and uh, have used yeah. ESP. And, and it's fascinating to me, mostly to read her work and see all the things that the government is keeping secret from us. Yeah, and there is a ton of things. Yeah, I just had a problem with when, when she infers that that things like the Nimitz sighting and the sightings off of uh, Virginia, that they could be dark projects, because that doesn't make any sense. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there's obviously, uh, I mean, Hal Putoff was, was deeply involved with uh, remote viewing experiments and, um, uh, you know, and I guess I guess Robert Bigelow was involved with some private research on that with NIDS. But yeah, it's amazing. And that not only are the government doing these things, but they are doing license. They're, they're kind of hiring out to independent firms like Bigelow's so that they cannot respond to freedom of information requests. Have you had any personal experiences with UAPs? I never have. I've never seen anything. Uh, I'd love to, but I guess I came in. I started thinking about it just by thinking that the. You know, people say, oh, it's all anecdotal. Well, first of all, it isn't all anecdotal. There's an awful lot of hard evidence. But even if it was all anecdotal, you'd have to go, well, there's been this anecdotal evidence, you know, reports in the millions going on for, you know, you know, uh, well, at least going on, pretty much going on throughout recorded history. Mm. And so if that's been happening throughout recorded history, you should try to figure out what it is. Even if it is anecdotal, why, did, why are all these people mistakenly seeing these things, if that's the case? Absolutely. Well, it's fascinating work. Uh, I was yeah. very interested to see right. uh, your thoughts on it. So, uh, Dave, what have you got coming up that we can look forward to? Uh, well, uh, this is live, right? Yes. 
then I then I, I can't tell you right now. Okay. Uh, but I'm actually start, starting work on something right now that I'm very excited about, but uh, we won't be making a public statement about it for, I think, another couple of weeks. So, uh, but I'll tell you that there's something something that I'm very excited about, and I think the people who have, who have liked the things I've done in the past, I think they will be excited about as well. What people should do is follow you on social media at Dave S. Foley, and, and when the word comes out, they'll find out there. Like, no, no, go ahead. I really wish I could tell you right now. But, uh, yeah, but it's going to have to wait a couple of weeks. Well, I mean, if, look, if you wanted to, you could tell us. I mean, who's going to hear? It's just us. <laughs> no, I can't yell that. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. Dave, we thank you so much. We've been fans of your work for such a long time. Thanks for making some time for us, and we wish you continued success. Well, thank you for having me on. Please have me have me on again sometime. Oh, we will do that, definitely. Thank you, Dave. All right, bye-bye. That's Dave Foley here on Downtown, the podcast. And, Carrie, that's, that is definitely a guy we need to get back on. We we barely scratched the surface of the things we wanted to talk about. Yes, there was a couple of things I mentioned uh, real quickly uh, after we uh, had gone to break, and I picked up the phone and mentioned a couple other things that we weren't able to get to. And, uh, you know, when that two-week announcement comes out, we'll have to see if he's available to talk about it then. Yeah, absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Dave Foley here on Downtown the Podcast. When we come back, a man who has worn many many hats through his award-winning career in the music business and as an actor, Billy Vera, up next after this word from Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. ago that song became an international sensation staying at number one for a couple of weeks riding the charts for nearly half a year for billy and the beaters the story of billy vera though begins long before that he was making chart hits in the 1960s as his friends joke billy has a hit every 20 years whether he needs it or not but he has done an awful lot in his career as a singer songwriter music historian actor voiceover artist, producer, and arranger. One of the most unique and soulful voices in all of pop music. He has got a new book out that actually looks at the history of specialty records called Rip It Up. He's got a new CD called Timeless and is the subject of a recent documentary based on his memoir, Harlem to Hollywood. We had a wonderful time talking with the multi-talented Billy Vera. You know, my grandmother used to say to me when I had a lot of interest as a kid's, she would wag her finger and say, jack of all trades, master of none. But but you, sir, have uh, found a way to master a whole lot of them through the years. Well, I, I discovered about 25 years ago that, you know, in show business, is, is, as my mother told me, it's a, it's a business of peaks and valleys. And I figured out that if you, if you try and do everything that you're fairly good at, 
and in any given year, one of them will be doing well. <laughs> uh, you've got a, a new book out on the history of specialty records called Rip It Up, and I want to talk about that a little later. But also, uh, a documentary is out based on your own memoir from a couple of years ago, Harlem to Hollywood. And I want to focus on on that and, and some of your backstory that begins with uh, you saying that you were born of of fleeting romance, a, a difficult relationship between your parents. How did that shape you as a young guy? Well, I think it, uh, that's, a, that's a question nobody's ever asked me in all the <laughs> billions of interviews I've done. Um, so that's refreshing. Uh, I think it, it, uh, it made me kind of isolate and, uh, you know, learning how to be a musician, uh, you, you have to be, it's a lonely task. So being isolated anyway from my family, uh, you know, gave me plenty of time to to work on my music. Uh, your mom was a singer uh, along the way, dated Frankie Lane, uh, maybe Sinatra, uh, and worked with the likes of Perry Como, your dad, a radio announcer, and you sort of followed his career uh, from California East with uh, an important stop in Cincinnati, when he worked at, and they both worked at WLW, uh, which was a legendary station that produced a lot of giants. One of them, Rod Serling, who was there when your parents were working there. Yeah, yeah, there were quite a few uh, big stars that came out of WLW, you know, from uh, Dar Day to Rosemary Clooney to Andy Williams to the Mills Brothers and on and on. It had 50,000 watts clear channel. And at one time, they had, uh, before the government uh, came down on them, they had as many as 500,000 watts. Like a lot of people, you, you grew up listening to the music uh, that your parents listened to. And is it right that your earliest musical memories were of the King Cole Trio? Yeah. My mom brought home uh, a song called The Frim Fram Sauce. <laughs> which I was just, as a six-year-old, I was just crazy about that record, probably wore it out. What led to your embrace and, and love of uh, African-American arts and culture? I don't know. It just, it just appealed to me more than, uh, than anything else that, that was out there, although I did, I did like a lot of the, the pop, the white music. You know, my mom brought home Sinatra, too, and, and people like that. So, uh, you know, I, I just had a very broad, uh, broad taste, but I did gravitate more towards black music. Yeah. I uh, ended up moving with the family to New York and, and began working on music yourself and, and then would have your first songwriting success uh, with a Ricky Nelson tune, but one that you didn't write for Rick Nelson. No, I, there was this new girl singer that was, uh, kind of come out, had come out, and I really liked the sound of her records and her voice, and her name was Dion Warwick, so I, not knowing that Burt Backrack and Hal David had her all wrapped up, <laughs> I, uh, I just wrote this song for her, and the first publisher I ever took a song to, the guy took this song, and I said, can you get me that new girl singer, you know, Dion Warwick, and he said, well, I'll try and a couple of weeks later, he called me back, and one morning he said, I got a record on your song. I said, really? He said, yeah. Uh, he said, uh, Ricky Nelson. I said, Ricky Nelson, he's white. 
He said, you ungrateful little putts. He said, Ricky's going to do your song five weeks in a row on the Ozzy and Harriet show, and you're going to make good money because everything that Ricky makes, you know, becomes a hit. So I, I you know, reconciled myself to that. And I'm, to this day, I'm, I'm real happy and proud of that record because... In New York, you know, since Ricky was based in Los Angeles, uh, not many New York songwriters got songs recorded by him. These days, uh, Billy, in the music business, it, things have changed so much, and, and ways of exposing uh, music to potential listeners are, are very different. What was it like in those days, in the, in the early 60s in New York City? We, we think about the Bill Burl, uh, building, but it was much more than that. There were so many of these small publishing houses, and the opportunities for young people to get a chance seemed to be uh, very different than what we see now. Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of these, these old guys that were running the business, you know, guys in their 40s, <laughs> guys on their deathbed, <laughs> They they thought that anybody that was you know in their twenties must be must know something. So they it was pretty easy to see people and make appointments, and uh, you know you could write a song in the morning, hop on a train, and you know that afternoon play it for somebody and get you know a thirty five dollar advance or something <laughs> like that, and go home and write another one for the next day. You know, so it was it was pretty easy. And there was two main buildings. The Brill Building that you mentioned, that was 1619 Broadway. And then just up the street was uh, actually the Cooler Building, which was 1650 Broadway. And they had a lot of, you know, good publishers and record companies in there. And on the having a Ricky Nelson hit, that uh, opened a lot of doors for me, too. Uh, you know, it was a cottage industry back then and so you know if you had a hit record and you were a new kid on the block it seems like everybody knew it knew who you were so they would they would uh listen to your songs so i ended up with a, a actually a very big publishing company april blackwood music which was owned by uh cbs and columbia records so they gave me a, a little tiny office and with a little tiny piano, and you know, your boss would come in, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, uh, the Drifters are recording next week. Write something for them." <laughs> or Tony Bennett's recording. So you learned how to write in all these different styles, and you know, or, or you might have to write for a, a girl. So you had to put your mind in the how how a young girl would think. You know, uh, it, it was like being an actor almost. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got lucky and you got your songs recorded. We're talking with Billy Vera here on Downtown. How did you get together for the first time with Chip Taylor? Well, he was already at that at that company, April Blackwood. He, he, he had a double job there. He was a staff songwriter, and he was an executive there. And so the boss uh, at April Blackwood said, listen, you know, you write good songs. He says, but you still need a little seasoning. I'm going to put you together with Chip Taylor, who, as it turned out, uh, had gone to the same high school as I went to. Uh, he was about four years older than me. And the first song we wrote together was called Make Me Belong to You, and it became uh, a hit for Barbara Lewis uh, that summer. 
and uh, and so that opened the door uh, at Atlantic Records for us. And then we wrote a, another song that we thought might be a good duet for a couple of Atlantic artists. And we brought the song, we made a demo and brought the song to Jerry Wexler, who was the big poncho up there. And uh, we played it for him, and he banged his fist on the desk and declared it a smash and said, uh, listen, he said, get rid of the girl on the demo, and I'll record you on Atlantic Records. <laughs> get another girl. So we, I, I, I was friendly with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. We had worked a lot with them. I, I had the house band at this club up on the in the Westchester County on the border of Greenwich, Connecticut. That was like the hottest club in the area. And on weekends, we would have we'd play a couple of dance sets, and we'd also back up two shows of a current hit record act, one on Friday and one on Saturday. And very often, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells came up there. So one of the girls in the group. Uh, Nona Hendricks had a, a, a deeper voice than Patty's, and I thought she'd blend better with me. So she and I went in and recorded this song. And they were already on Atlantic, so there was no contractual problems until their manager got in on the act, and he said, well, you know, if Billy and Nona have a hit, you might leave the group and blah, blah. And Patty said, no, no, that would be great for us because we don't have a guitar player Billy could be our guitar player, and then Billy and Nona could do their hit, and we could do our hits and get more money for the act. But the manager didn't see it that way. So we had to audition about 20 more girls. And uh, we finally were just about to give up, and Jerry Wexler called up and said, Listen, we just got this girl, Judy Clay. She's a cousin of Dionne Warwick, and uh, she's a great singer. Why don't you take a listen to her? And we did, and she fit the bill, and uh, we we made a we put her voice on the record, and uh, we ended up with a hit record called Storybook Children. Yeah, you sure did. The follow up, a country girl, city man, uh, an even bigger hit, and it got you the opportunity to perform at the Apollo Theater. What was that like for you? Well, that was a dream come true for me because I, I had gone to the Apollo as a as a customer. <laughs> number of times. In fact, I was there when James Brown recorded that famous Live at the Apollo album. You know, my guitar player and I were the only white guys in the whole theater. <laughs> and it was just the best show, to this day, best show I've ever seen in my life. So to to be on, on the stage of that wonderful theater was, you know, just I mean, it, I had two dreams. I wanted to be on American Bandstand and I wanted to play the Apollo so here, 23 years old, I got my first dream. Uh, also, we're talking about Chip Taylor. Uh, because of that friendship, you ended up learning to be an actor. Because and people may not know, Chip Taylor's brother is Academy Award-winning actor John Voight, and it was John Voight who talked you into taking an acting class. That is true. That was many years later after I moved to California. But, yeah, yeah, we, yeah John used to come up to the office, and, you know, he was just a, a brand-new actor at that time and we we'd all the three of us would go have a, a sandwich at a local deli or something and and we in fact we used to go when he'd uh, do a, a play or a movie we'd you know chip and i would go see it to support him and then he then he made midnight cowboy and boy his career just took off after that
Uh, you had a, a great band that was at the Night Riders back in New York. Yeah, that's a really good little band. Yeah. And and there's a little connection to our show there because one of your band members uh, was John Leventhal, who's now the husband of a great friend of our show, Roseanne Cash. Yeah, well, Johnny was he was in my band, you know, some years after the Night Riders. But yeah, he was wonderful guitar player. Uh, he was in the last band I had uh, in when I lived in New York. In the last maybe three years, I lived there uh, in, the, in the late seventies. Yeah, I, I I loved his guitar playing. How did you end up getting a number one song with Dolly Parton's recording of "I Really Got the Feeling"? Well, this was again in the late seventies, uh, and my career was in the in the toilet. You know, in the in the seventies, I just couldn't figure out how to fit in. You know, there was no more. There was no more room for a blue-eyed soul singer, as they used to call people like me. And, uh, you know, I couldn't really fit in. I couldn't be a heavy metal guy, you know, and I I really couldn't be a wimpy singer-songwriter like <laughs> those, those guys. And so I just was doing survival gigs, you know, with my little band. And one, one uh, week we were playing out in New Jersey uh, at a Ramada Inn, which is a terrible gig. <laughs> You're playing to three people in the, during the week, and, you know, they're not paying much attention to you. Well, it was one night, I come off stage, and the waitress said, there's this fellow over there with his wife, like to, a word with you. So I go over to the table, and the guy stands up, and he shakes my hand. He says, uh, my name's L. Russell Brown, and I wrote tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. He says, you know, he says, Vera, he said, I, I've been listening to you for years. He said, you're you're one of the greatest singers I, I ever heard, and you're a great songwriter, but you never make any money. He says, me, I make a lot of money, and nobody respects me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, uh, he said, I got an idea. He says, we ought to write together. I, I could show you how to make money songwriting, and and you could show me how to write songs that get respect. <laughs> so I started going over to his house, you know, uh, and uh, and he was the most energetic guy. And, he, and, he, and he, we sometimes write two, three songs a day. Not all good, but we write a lot. So one day, like a lot of people that do one thing well, he wanted to try something else, and he wanted to be a producer. So he gets a job producing Nancy Sinatra, who hadn't had a hit in years. And he said, listen, I, I need one more song. I'm recording Nancy this week. I, I got to go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. Why don't you start something while I'm gone and, and we'll finish it when I get back. I said, great. So I'm thinking, what do I write for Nancy Sinatra? You know, and I said, oh, he has this famous father. And I wrote this line, uh, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say. <laughs> You know, lines like that that I thought would fit her. So I had the song finished by the time Larry got back. And uh, he he just fell in love with the song. He said, man, this is a number one song if I ever heard one. He said, so we, we he gave it to, he played it for Nancy and she hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turned out, that that was a good thing. But but Larry got so mad, he said, you got to do something with this. So my friend... Crazy Joe had this little country band up in Connecticut, and he had a girl singer, and we recorded it with her, but she was lazy, 
and she didn't learn the song properly. So everywhere we took the little tape, they said, love the song, hate the girl. <laughs> love the song, hate the girl. So I, I went through everybody on my list, and the last guy on my list, literally the last guy, he said, love the song, hate the girl, but we're recording Dolly next week. He said, give me the song for her, and I'll guarantee you that it'll be her, her next single. I said, well, Dolly was hot as hell at that time. And I love Dolly Parton singing. And uh, so, yeah, she recorded it. And uh, just then, I happened to get an offer to move to Los Angeles to write songs for Warner Brothers. So as I'm driving out here with everything I owned in my car, every 20 minutes, I'm hearing my song, <laughs> Dolly Parton. And I said, my God, I'm back in show business because I hadn't had a hit in nine years. And uh, the day I reached L.A., it, it, it reached number one for Dolly. And I said, wow, I'm back in show business, you know. Well, yeah, and, and you get to L.A. and you, you get an opportunity to perform at the Troubadour, but you didn't want to do the short sets that, that people usually did, but they agreed to put you guys on at midnight and say, play as long as you want. And within a matter of weeks, you became the hottest thing in town. Yeah, that was a very lucky thing. I mean, we we really started the band. I, I had run into an old bass player of mine who had moved out here a couple of years earlier. And he, and he said, what, what are you doing on the weekends? I said, I don't know. I don't know anybody. He said, why don't you come out and do a couple of songs with these guys I play with? And so we ended up putting a band together to meet girls, basically. <laughs> and... And uh, then we got this, you know, offer to play the Troubadour, as you said. And, uh, you know, within two weeks, there was lines around the block, you know, there, there was because there was nobody like us. At the time, there was this band uh, that had a song called My Sharona. And so all the record companies were trying to sign four-piece bands with guitars. Mm. And here we were with... Uh, a nine-piece band with four saxophones and a pedal steel guitar and, you know, nothing like what record companies wanted. But the people liked us, you know, only the people liked us. And, uh, and so we, we played every Monday night at midnight, the worst night of the week, and back in the house for a year straight before we actually got a record deal. Yeah, and you end up getting a record deal with uh, the American branch of a Japanese company, Alpha Records, and, and made what turned out to be the wise decision to record a live album, but not at the Troubadour, over at the Roxy. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Roxy was a bigger club, and uh, and they were more f friendly to record companies than the Troubadour was, shall we say. And, uh, we yeah, we did three nights at the Roxy, uh, recording all three nights, and, and uh, both video and... Uh, and audio, and because uh, Alpha had, you know, Japanese money, and uh, we were the first act they signed, so they, we knew we, we would get a big push from them. And we ended up with a little hit record called I Can Take Care of Myself, and then the follow-up was going to be the song they really believed in, but, but it was a ballad, so they didn't want to put it out first. And... Uh, the promotion, the head of promotion, who was a great promotion man, he, he got in a fight with the boss, and uh, and quit. 
so we had nobody to promote the record, and it only the follow-up record, and it only went up to number seventy-nine. And then, not long after that, the Japanese pulled the plug and uh, and left America. Well, I, I remember as a young radio guy uh, playing, I can't. I can take care of myself, out of the box, as we used to say. And then we were all over at this moment, and I I wasn't, I didn't think I knew everything, but I thought I knew a hit when I heard it, and I was stunned when, at this moment, didn't become a bigger hit. So my faith was certainly restored, as yours was, several years later when, thanks to television, thanks to Family Ties, yeah. at this moment became the the biggest hit of the second half of the 80s. Yeah, yeah, it, it really uh, took off, and thanks to television, I had—I mean, I had no record deal for the next five years, and so I was sort of eking out a living, you know, playing Thug of the Week on television shows, <laughs> you know, or in movie. You know, when you come from New York, that's what they hire you to play, you know. So uh, that was that, and then one day the golden phone call came. This guy said, uh, "We we came to the club the other night." And we saw you sing this song we thought might be good for an episode of, of Family Ties. And, you know, I, I had had songs on TV shows before, and, you know, you make a few bucks, and that's nice. But this time, there was mail, you know, and, uh, and, and that was unusual. So I said, well, gee, maybe people like this song. Maybe I'll see if I can get somebody to let me re-record it. And nobody was interested by that time. You know, I was in my late 30s now and, you know, too old to be a rock and roll star. So, uh, but finally, I, I, I was having lunch one day with a friend of mine that owned this company that puts out reissue records called Rhino Records. And, you know, they, they weren't in the, in the business of putting out contemporary records. But I told him the story about the TV show and everything, and he just put it out to as a favor to me, you know, I don't think he ever thought it was going to sell anything. And then when they used it the following season again, when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox, then, you know, NBC got like 6,000 <laughs> phone calls and letters, and telegrams. Where, what, what's the name of the song? Who's the singer? Where can we buy it? And, you know, then it just took off just a total grassroots thing with no promotion because Rhino didn't even know how to promote. And uh, it, it really happened on its own. We're talking with Billy Vera on downtown. And there's so much I want to cover. I want to talk about your work with Lou Rawls. We're going to have to have you come back another time to talk about that. But I also wanted to mention from your acting career, uh, a film that you did that, that did not get great reviews at the time, but has become a real cult, cult classic. And when you look at the people involved, no wonder. Can you talk a little bit about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai? Sure. Uh, yeah, I I got that film, I think because they, they came and saw the band, and they liked the way I ad-libbed on stage, they told me. And uh, they said, you know, we want to put you in this movie. And I read the script, and I said, wow, this is nuts. Yeah, I'd like something. And the guy was great. He let, you know, the director, he he, he let me do a lot of improvisation, and and it was a lot of fun making the movie, you know. Uh, and it, as you said, it came out and it, it didn't do very well at the at the box office, but you know, 
about six months later when they put it out on videotape, it went to number one on video sales. <laughs> and I, and I, I analyzed it and I said, the reason I thought it was, was because they, they had made, they had made them edit the film, take about a half hour out of the film so that they could fit it more theater, more times a day in the theaters. And, uh, and so what there was, as a result, there was no, not enough space between the jokes and people didn't have time to absorb what a lot of the subtleties of what was going on. But on, on videotape, you, they could stop it and, and, and say, what did he say? And they'd go back. And, and I think that was the, the source of the success of the film on video. I want to mention... But yeah, to- I mean, to this day, I get, I get you know, messages on my website <laughs> you know, about Buckaroo Banzai. I want to talk a little bit about Rip It Up, the specialty record story. That's the label that, that signed Little Richard, uh, Sam Cooke, and the Soul Stirrer Days, and, and started by the legendary Art Roop, who is still alive. What was he, 103 now? 102. Wow. And uh, he's sharper than you and me put together. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he still goes to work five days a week uh, running his philanthropic uh, foundation. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he proofed the book for me. You know, luckily didn't find any mistake. Well, it's it's a great story about some tremendous artists and some overlooked artists as well. And I was fascinated to learn a bit more about a friend of our show, uh, Barrett Hansen, best known to the world as Dr. Demento, who had done some invaluable research in helping to put together some of those specialty reissues that you were involved in. Well, he, he yeah, Barry did, uh, he did a reissue. He was hired by the company in the early 70s. And uh, he did a bunch of really good reissues, uh, better than most people were doing at that time. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm friendly with him, and you know, I interviewed him for the book. And then I came there uh, in uh, 1989, I think, as a consultant. Uh, and then I did my series of I did about 50. CD reissues and a box set uh, of of the catalog, specialty catalog. And you've done great work as a as a music historian, putting together those reissues. Won a Grammy award for your liner notes on the reissue of some great Ray Charles music. And then have to mention the new album. We played a little bit of a Lonely Girl coming in. The new album is called Timeless. Just terrific. I love. I love Moon Glows, a little ode to some of that music that you loved as a young guy. That's a terrific song. And uh, I, I think maybe one of my favorites on the album is a simple little song where you got some really great help when you're background singers. Yeah, you know, as we were recording the song, I said, you know, this, this needs a little something extra. And, and I, I thought the children singing uh, the, the, the chorus uh, might lend a little bit of innocence that was necessary to the, the song. So I had done some done a favor for a friend of mine who who teaches at the uh, Academy of Music for the Blind, and uh, and I had gone down there and done some music for these kids, and so we got these four little girls and we brought them in the studio uh, to sing the, the background on that song, and uh, boy, I'll tell you there was. It, it was so sweet and so tender. 
that day, I'll tell you. Well, it's a wonderful album, Timeless. you got to get the book, Harlem to Hollywood. Watch the documentary as well. Get Rip It Up, the specialty record story, and uh, just get anything you can get your hands All on. available on Amazon. There you go. Visit the website as well. And we just, I want to, we got to have you back on, Billy. I want, to, I want you to tell the Ralph Cooper story because that's just a, a fantastic story. But uh, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for making time for us today, and I sure hope we can do it again soon. I'll be happy to do it anytime you want, my friend. I just want to say one thing. Bangor, Maine, I played there in 1976 during the Bicentennial, and I did a, I did a, a spot on a local radio station there. And on the wall, I saw a picture of Gabby Hayes. <laughs> and I said, why Gabby Hayes You know, on, in Bangor, Maine? He said, well, Gabby's from there, here. I didn't even know that. I said I didn't know that. I, I was shocked. You know, I said I said I, I could do a good Gabby Hayes. Hey, Roy, let's go down to the. You know. <laughs> See, you've you've Head even up with the past, Roy. You've even taught me something about my hometown I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, I wouldn't have known it had I not been at that radio station <laughs> that day. That is great. Billy, thank you so much. Great to talk with you. We wish you continued success, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Okay, Rich. Thanks for having me. That's well, Billy Vera here on Downtown the Podcast, another guy that we, we have to get back on because there's so much more to talk about with him. And I, I feel like we say it a lot, but it's so great when we have these people on for extended conversations and and you get to explore some of the lesser-known aspects of their work, and, and often it's the work that they're most proud of. It seems to be the case that not necessarily what they're best known for mm. is is what they're really poured their heart and soul into. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Billy Vera, thanks to Billy, and thanks to the wonderful Dave Foley for joining us as well, and thanks to you for being here for this week's Downtown the Podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance. Spread the word, tell your friends, subscribe. Write us a beautiful five-star review. The check's in the mail for that. And uh, we'll see you next time right here on Downtown the Podcast.